to end nine. Going to read to you Articles 14 and 15. The way God gives faith, Article 14 and Article 15 responses to God's grace. Now we're going to open the, God, the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Articles 14 and 15. In this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God not in the sense that it is offered by God for man to choose, but that it is an actual fact bestowed on man, breathed and infused into him. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent, the act of believing, from man's choice. Rather, it is a gift in the sense that he who works both willing and acting, and indeed works all things in all people, produces in man both the will to believe and the belief itself. Article 15. God does not owe this grace to anyone. For what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? Therefore, the person who receives this grace owes and gives eternal thanks to God alone. The person who does not receive it either does not care at all about these spiritual things and is satisfied with himself and his condition, or else in self-assurance foolishly boasts about having something which he lacks. Furthermore, following the example of the apostles, we are to think and speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives, for the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us. But for others who have not yet been called, we are to pray to the God who calls things that do not exist as though they did. In no way, however, are we to pride ourselves as better than they, as though we had distinguished ourselves from them. Now, please open your Bibles to the New Testament book, First. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And our text is verses 26 to 31. I'm going to start at the beginning. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here begins our text. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So far the reading of God's holy word. When I was in elementary school, we would often have some kind of a sports game going on at recess. In the winter, we played road hockey. In the summer, we played primarily baseball and soccer. Two captains would be appointed, and the captains could alternately select people for their team. When you are appointed as captain of a team, who do you select? Well, obviously, you choose the strongest and most athletic people that you can. You try to get the best shooters, runners, headers, the most talented players. For the Olympics, how long does it take to select men for the Canadian hockey team? Coaches want the best, strongest, toughest, fastest, most gifted of players. And isn't that what we tend to look for in all areas of life? The CEO of a large company wants the best possible employees, the smartest, quickest, and most alert. The political leader wants people surrounding him who are exceptionally bright, politically astute, gifted communicators willing to exert themselves. 
The movie producer looks for people who are beautiful, attractive on the screen, witty, talented actors. On the whole, our society values those who have the right looks, the right build, wear the right clothes, and display above-average abilities. Aren't those the popular kids at school? That's the kind of person that the world invests in. That's the person you want on your team. But in our text for this afternoon, Paul says something that is contrary to what we might expect. He tells us that God chooses the seemingly foolish, weak, and insignificant as the world sees them. Not many wise are called, not many influential, not many mighty, not many noble. Guess what, kids? Guess what? Popularity in school means absolutely nothing to God. Being the coolest in the class means nothing, nothing. God chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak, lowly, despised things. Why does he do that? Verse 29 tells us, so that no flesh should glory, boast in his presence. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. From our text, I want us to reflect upon four things. Number one, consider what you were. Number two, consider how you changed. Number three, consider what you have. Number four, consider your response. Consider what you were. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, Another translation says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. If you were a member of the Corinthian church and you looked around you as people were walking in for a worship service, what would you see? What would you see? Would you see people of rank, power, and authority? Would you see those who were highly cultured and well-educated? Would you see those who wielded a great deal of influence in society? There's Andrew, the governor of the city, and there's Erastus, who works in the governor's office. And over there is Justin, the renowned philosopher who's now a Christian. And there's Alexander, the chief city judge, and Anna, the richest woman in Corinth, and Claudius, a nephew of the Roman emperor. Is that what you would have seen as you sat in church watching people walk in? I don't think so. Look again at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. Think of what you were when you were called, that not many wise according to the flesh, by human standards, not many mighty, influential, not many noble are called. The membership of the Corinthian church was largely made up of ordinary people, common folk, As one writer said, they had no position, no power, and no pedigree. They had no position, no power, and no pedigree. 
And that was true of, of most of the newly formed churches. Yes, there were a few of high social standing who came to faith in Jesus. In Philippians 4, Paul mentions those who are of Caesar's household. So yes, there were some of position and power who were saved by God. But he says three times in verse 26, not many, not many, not many. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And look around you here today. Look around you right now. What's our church made up of? Mostly just ordinary working class people, farmers, truck drivers, mechanics, tradesmen, mothers, teachers, people who drive Dodge caravans, like me. None of us are famous. None of us possess a great deal of political clout. None of us are invited to dine at 24 Sussex in Ottawa. None of us are ever invited to hang out with Bill Gates. No one here has been invited to play basketball with LeBron James. None of us received the Order of Canada or the Nobel Peace Prize. And none of us have ever appeared on the cover of Millionaire magazine. When was the last time you walked through a shopping mall and someone asked for your autograph? When was the last time crowds gathered to shake your hand or to take your picture? No one fawns over you. No one offers to carry your bags to the car. The paparazzi doesn't chase after you hoping to get some good shots. And no one rolls out the red carpet before you. Most of us are hardly even noticed when we walk through the mall because I'm just Joe Blow. Unknown, unnoticed, unimportant, unheard of. And yet, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter. God gives no preferential treatment to brilliant university professors, powerful political leaders, influential movie stars, great athletes, or respected millionaires. In fact, some uh, such accomplishments often hinder people from seeing their need. And consequently, they dismiss the message of salvation. Those considered by the world to be wise, influential, mighty, and noble often fail to see their inadequacy. Why do I need God when I have money, position, and fame? Why do I need salvation when I have power, recognition, and respect? I don't need God's wisdom. My science, philosophy, and psychology books provide answers to my questions. Why do I need that black leather-covered book when I have all these other scholarly resources to guide me? And I don't need God's power. My position of authority allows me to do what I want to do. When I speak, things happen. And I don't need new birth, for I am of noble birth. I'm born into a respected and successful family. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. What more do I need? You see, congregation being highly educated, powerful, influential, and wealthy are sometimes the reasons why sinners remain in their sin. They have no concern about guilt and no awareness of need. 
And so the very things that may be great assets from the world's perspective can be liabilities from God's perspective. In their state of comfort and self-reliance, they reject the gospel's call. In their pride, they fail to see their weakness and insufficiency. It is said that the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane once gave a gospel tract to a woman, and she was greatly offended. You must not know who I am, she said in an offended manner. Madame, said McShane, there is coming a day of judgment, and on that day it will not matter who you are. There is coming a day of judgment, and on that day, it will not matter who you are. Congregation Christianity often reverses the normal order of things. What we think is wisdom may actually be foolishness. What we think is power may actually be weakness. The people whom we greatly honor and admire may actually be under the wrath of God. A humble, uneducated laborer who loves the Lord, believes the message of salvation, and lives by the word can be far wiser than the brilliant university professor with a PhD who dismisses the gospel and rejects the word. Those uneducated fishermen, the disciples who followed Jesus, were immeasurably wiser than the educated, influential, wealthy, and noble Herod, Pontius Pilate, King Agrippa, Bernice, and Portius Festus, who refused to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and Savior. If any of you here today feel intimidated by the learned and powerful, or if any of you covet their high social standing, the apostle reminds you today that God is not impressed with our education, looks, social position, achievements, natural heritage, or our financial status. God cares about ordinary people who see their need, who see their need, their inadequacy and foolishness, and turn to him for forgiveness, spiritual wisdom, and eternal life. Can that be said of you? Have you understood the foolishness of human wisdom? Have you understood the weakness of human strength? And have you humbly sought the grace, wisdom, and power of God as the foundation of your life? Then secondly, this text would not only have you consider what you were, but also how you changed. How you changed. Look again at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. Think of what you were when you were called. Now, the word calling or called in verse 26 refers to the saving inward call of God. We saw in connection with Article 11 of the Canons of Dort that the outward general call is extended to the elect and the non-elect alike. The outward call is the proclamation of redemption to all who hear. But the outward call does not of itself bring sinners to Christ. For it to be effective, it must be accompanied by the inward call of God's Holy Spirit, the effectual call that brings a dead sinner to new life. 
Christ and the cross were openly proclaimed in Corinth. The gospel was declared to them outwardly. But along with the outward call, there were those whose minds were enlightened powerfully by the Holy Spirit and whose inmost being was penetrated so that their hearts were opened, softened, and circumcised using the language of Article 11. In verse 26, Paul is reminding them that they were not delivered by God because they were intelligent, wealthy, famous, or influential. Most of them were just the opposite. No, they were delivered by God because they were inwardly called. The word called makes it clear that God took the initiative in their salvation. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul describes what some of them used to be. And the description is certainly not complimentary. There were those who used to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. They were slaves to sin and Satan, driven by the prince of darkness. But God came to them with his word and spirit. Through his messengers, he taught them the way of salvation. And by his spirit, he granted them the gift of faith. Faith, you see, is a gift of God. Article 14 of the Canons correctly says that faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that it is offered by God for man to choose, but that it is in actual fact bestowed on man, conferred on man, breathed and infused into him. God does not merely offer faith to us, and it remains up to us to receive that gift. He doesn't leave it up to you to decide whether you will take up the offer. No, God actually confers faith on his elect, breathes and infuses it into them. We have seen from Scripture in our previous studies of the canons that the human race fallen in Adam is what? Dead in trespasses and sins. In our fallen state, we're not lying sick in a hospital ward, as it were. A sick man in a hospital can agree to the offer of surgery. But we're not sick in a hospital. We're lying dead in a morgue. A dead man does not choose anything. He does not respond to generous and kind offers. He does not respond to anything, period. Therefore, when it comes to faith, God does not merely offer the gift and then await our acceptance. No, God sovereignly and powerfully confers faith on his elect. Article 14 goes on to say, Nor is faith a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent the act of believing from man's choice. Rather, it is a gift in the sense that he who works both willing and acting, and indeed works all things in all people, produces in man both the will to believe and the belief itself. Canons mention these things because the Arminians, whom they were refuting, regarded faith as a gift of God in the same sense as musical talent is a gift of God. As one theologian said, there are some children who display musical talent. 
They have a good ear for tone and harmony and a certain creativity that allows them to play with a measure of flair. But not all children who possess musical talent are willing to use and develop that talent. There are instances where very capable people have wasted their talent simply because they lack desire. This, according to the Arminians, is the same with respect to the gift of faith. God gives to men the ability to believe, but not all are willing to believe. Some, therefore, do not believe. According to the Arminians, God has given the ability to believe, the potential to believe equally on all men. However, such reasoning is contrary to Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Because the mind of man is fatally impaired, no one can rightly respond to the call of the gospel. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Arminian asserts that salvation is God's gift, but man has to unwrap the package. He has to accept the gift. But Scripture teaches that even the act of accepting is itself a gift of God. Brothers and sisters, in verse 26, when Paul used the word calling or called, he was reminding the Corinthians that every spiritual blessing they possessed was a gift. They were not called because they were wise, mighty, or noble. Before God, they were spiritually dead sinners deserving eternal wrath. Yet the Lord had chosen them. And because he had chosen them, he reached out to them, regenerated them, implanted new life in their hearts, caused them to repent, and bestowed on them the gift of faith. He did not merely offer it for them to choose. He bestowed it on them, breathed and infused into them. Using the language of Article 14, he produced in them both the will to believe and the belief itself. They were changed by the sovereign grace of God. Congregation, if you, if you have been effectually called by God out of spiritual darkness, you have reason for great thanksgiving. While the lost world admires noble birth, worldly wisdom, social status, financial success, power, and recognition, you have something that is far greater. You are chosen by God, inwardly called, born again, granted the gift of faith, and one day you will be glorified. Eternal life is yours. As you ponder these spiritual riches, always remember that you, like the Corinthians, were changed by His sovereign grace. So number one, consider what you were. Number two, consider how you changed. Number three, thirdly, consider what you have. Consider what you have. Look with me, please, to verse 30. But of him, or because of him, 
You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those four words, you see them there in verse 30, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption could really be a sermon in itself. But for today, we'll consider them just very briefly. Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember that all the spiritual blessings they possessed flowed from a person, Jesus Christ. First of all, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. He is the source and fountain of all wisdom. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, but Jesus is the source and fountain of all true and lasting wisdom. Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. His wisdom is revealed by means of the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption that we have in him. Righteousness, verse 30, righteousness. Righteousness describes our standing with God. Through the gift of faith that he bestows on us, we have a right standing before God. Because of sin, both original and actual, we have no righteousness of our own whatsoever to present to God. But by the perfect obedience of Jesus transferred to our account, we now possess the righteousness that God demands. As we sang at the beginning, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. When God confers on you the gift of faith, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The Corinthians who had been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners were savingly called by God, raised from spiritual death, born again, and granted the gift of faith, breathed and infused into them. And through faith, they were granted a right standing before God, dressed in His righteousness. They received the righteousness of Jesus and were justified. No longer were they regarded by God as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, and so on. Now when God looked upon them, he saw his son and his son's perfect obedience. Then in addition to righteousness, verse 30 mentions that his wisdom is shown through our Sanctification. Sanctification has to do with being set apart to the service of God. In Christ, we are set apart for His holy purpose. Being set apart in Christ, He causes us to grow spiritually so that we, we are increasingly weaned away from sin and increasingly devoted to Him. But not only are we clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we, are also, we also grow in displaying the character of Christ. Displaying his character in our daily lives, we're increasingly transformed into his image. 
being set apart to God for his holy purpose, the Corinthians put off their sexual immorality, idolatry, homosexuality, covetousness, and drunkenness, and so on. They resisted sin for they knew that they were set apart to the service of God. And so it should be in our lives as well. And then together with righteousness, and sanctification, verse 30 mentions that his wisdom is shown through our redemption. His wisdom is shown through our redemption. Redemption has to do with buying back. It emphasizes the fact that we are set free because Jesus paid the price for us on the cross. He has purchased us from the slavery of sin and Satan. The Apostle Peter reminds us that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ. And this redemption will be fully realized and enjoyed when Jesus returns. The hymn writer said, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. And so verse 30 teaches us that in Christ we have been saved from the penalty of sin, righteousness. We are being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. And we shall be saved from the presence of sin, redemption. Or as one writer said, in Christ we have righteousness to cover our past, sanctification to cover our present, and redemption to cover our future. How great is God's wisdom and how marvelous is his power. Congregation, consider what you have in Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, you have been saved from the penalty of sin, you are being saved from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin. Therefore, we come to point number four. Consider your response. Consider your response. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory, boast in the Lord. Paul is alluding to the words of Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Fallen sinners have a tendency to glory in what? In man, in man. We admire the power, accomplishments, cleverness, and resourcefulness of man. Even in the Corinthian church, among professing believers, there were conflicts, quarrels, and divisions because the members were boasting in human leaders. Each had their own preference. According to verse 12, some said, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Still others said, I follow Cephas. And yet others said, I follow Christ. There were factions, various factions in the church, each devoted to a certain leader, their favorite pastor, and each group was vocal in expressing their opinions. One may have said, Paul's content is so rich, deep, and meaty. Yeah, but Apollos is the, is the most wonderful, eloquent speaker. 
I'd go with Cephas any day. He's direct and genuine. You see, as fallen sinners, we so easily become sidetracked by man and his accomplishments rather than God and his glory. So in verse 31, Paul directs us back to what we should really be aiming for. Don't boast in man, don't boast in human leaders, and certainly don't boast in yourself. He who boasts, boast in the Lord. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The message found in our text is that ordinarily, God deliberately chooses unlikely people. Go back to verses 27 to 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, as a general rule, God chooses those who are thought to be insignificant in society, the simplest and humblest of people. One commentator mentioned that somewhere around about the year A.D. 178, the philosopher Celsus wrote one of the bitterest attacks upon Christianity that was ever written. It was precisely this appeal of Christianity to the common people that he ridiculed. He declared mockingly that the Christian point of view was let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. Of the Christians, he wrote, we see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. He went on to say that Christians were like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms in conventicle in a corner of mud. The philosopher Celsus wasn't alone in his mockery of Christianity. There were many others who looked down on them as weak, uneducated, uncultured simpletons. Congregation, for the most part, God deliberately chooses the most unlikely and unpromising from the perspective of the world. Why does he do so? Why does he do so? Well, these verses give us two reasons. Number one, God chooses the foolish and the weak to shame the wise and the strong, verse 27. God put to shame the standards of the world and its powers to demonstrate their futility. The high and mighty of this world cannot understand how God changes sinners into saints. They are confounded. And number two, God chooses those who are of no account so that when everything is said and done and God has used them, and they have been fruitful, they will say, it was only by your grace that we are what we are. 
We could have achieved nothing without you. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. That's the message of these verses. Paul teaches us that God can gain the most glory by using ordinary people like you and me. As we understand that salvation is of God alone, the only appropriate response is glorying, boasting in the Lord. And it is this attitude that is also well expressed in Article 15 of the Canons. Listen to the opening paragraph. God does not owe this grace to anyone. For what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? Now listen. Therefore, the person who receives this grace owes and gives eternal thanks to God alone. Therefore, the person who receives this grace owes and gives eternal thanks to God alone. If we understand that we have faith only because of the work of the Holy Spirit, then we can truly give God all the glory for our salvation. We are not to look at ourselves as better than others because we believe the gospel. Rather, we are to be profoundly grateful that God has chosen to grant us faith even though we are foolish, weak, lowly, despised, nobodies, undeserving sinners. Article 15 impresses upon us the fact that God owes us no kindness whatsoever. Therefore, the person who receives the grace of regeneration followed by faith owes eternal gratitude to God and gives him thanks forever. We say with the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. If you receive the grace of regeneration and faith, it's not because you were superior to others. Therefore, Article 15 ends by saying, in no way, in no way are we to pride ourselves as better than they as though we had distinguished ourselves from them. When you hear the vile words of an unbeliever, when you read in your newspaper about the sexual perversion of a pedophile, when you drive past a prison full of convicts, when you work with a person who has been divorced twice and currently living common law, you are never to pride yourself as better than they or act haughtily towards them. Instead, Article 15 wisely says it is our duty to what? Pray for them to God, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. The God who called you and bestowed faith on you is able to call others as well. Therefore, it is your duty to pray. 
God is able to call and save the foolish, weak, lowly, and despised. Yes, those of whatever status or position in life. He is able to call and save the wayward covenant child, your son or daughter, who right now shows no sign of regeneration and faith. He's able to produce in them both the will to believe and the the belief itself. Therefore, it is your duty to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. As sinners are effectually called and receive the gift of faith, they join the family of God in boasting, not in themselves, but in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The appropriate response to God's grace and salvation is boasting, not in self, not in your own worthiness, not in man, but in the God of all wisdom who predestines, calls, regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, redeems, and finally glorifies. And so, congregation, as we close this afternoon, I want to ask you, what are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? Have you ever heard some of the heavyweight boxers interviewed on the news? You ever heard them boasting about how great they are and how they're going to flatten their opponent? It's all hot air. It really means nothing. Have you ever heard a great athlete or a wealthy businessman, or a successful financial investor, or a thriving farmer, boast about all his skill. It's all hot air. Brothers and sisters, have you ever heard a professing Christian boast about his moral superiority, his spiritual faithfulness, his numerous works of mercy and compassion, how much he has done for the church? It's all empty drivel. The only one, the only one who deserves praise, the only one who deserves honor and glory is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. An artist can make a beautiful object out of of unlikely material. A person could take an ugly lump of dirty clay, put it on a wheel, and fashion it into a beautiful vase. A skilled carver can take a weather-beaten piece of driftwood from the beach and carve it into a beautiful eagle. I once saw an interesting table that was made out of old painted blistered boards that most people would throw in the dump. Someone took those boards, cut them into wedges, and glued them together in a very interesting multicolored tabletop covered with a piece of glass. Unlikely material fashioned into a useful and beautiful table. Congregation, that's what God did in Corinth. He took the most unlikely people, nobodies, and made something beautiful and useful out of them. And that is what God is doing right here as well at Bethel. Look around you. God has taken unlikely, insignificant, sinful nobodies right here 
that he's making something beautiful and useful out of us. We are not yet what we ought to be, but the master craftsman, the divine artist, is working on us. He's working on us. Then how should you respond to his work? Glory in him. Praise his great and awesome name. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And if any of you here today are boasting in your own wisdom, might, status, or superiority, you're the first one selected for the team, as it were, I call you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. And He will exalt you in due time. He will exalt you in due time. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we can be such foolish people. We who have nothing and have accomplished nothing would boast in your presence. Forgive us. Forgive us when we want others to know how gifted we are. Forgive us when we have an air of superiority about us. Forgive us when we put our trust in all the wrong things. Forgive us when we look up to the high and mighty. When we think that stardom is something appealing. Lord our God, may we remember that you so often reverse the order of things. Lord, may we, instead of boasting in self, instead of boasting in man, may we glory in you and what you have done in your mercy for wicked sinners such as us. We thank you for that inward call. We thank you for what you have accomplished and what you are accomplishing and what you promise to fulfill. We thank you that you are making something beautiful out of something so broken. And oh God, we pray that you will continue to, your work in each one of us. We have a long way to go. We look to you as the master craftsman to make out of us what we are unable to do. So, Lord, receive our praises as we conclude this service. Convict your people. Lord, if there's anyone here boasting in his, his or her own wisdom, in might, status, or superiority, Lord, we pray that you would humble them under your mighty hand. Hear us, we pray. In the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.